You guys know I love types and shadows of the old covenant, right? That Jesus fulfills in the new. And so, gosh, you know, after, after listening to the last couple years with, to Brad and Baxter and all these biblical theologians, it's such a good gospel, isn't it? It's, uh, it's such a good gospel that no wonder the world rejected most of the gospel that most people talk because it wasn't the gospel. It wasn't good news. It was like sort of good news. You kind of, you hear it and you go, I guess that's good news. And, uh, uh, but I'm gonna try to show you it's the best news ever, honestly, and it includes... Uh, everybody, which is really exciting to me. And so anyway, you go back to Genesis. I, I just want to, there's so much in this that this, I could take a week, honestly, right here. I think there's, this is like so many types and shadows in the scripture, but let's just go through this a minute. So then they moved on from Bethel while there was still some distance from Ephrath. It's, it actually, it says Ephrata, but it's Ephrath in how it's done in the King James like that. But It means fruitfulness. And so Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And she was having great difficulty in childbirth. The midwife said to her, don't despair for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying. She named her son Ben-Oni, but her father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrata, that is Bethlehem. Over a tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdali there. Now, I'm going to go through this, and I wrote some notes on, just to really, so the Old Testament, Hebrews 10 says the Old Testament is types and shadows of good things to come, and then Hebrews 11 says, but now, the spiritual part, faith, is the real thing, right? So the first, there were types and shadows, physical things, but the second is spiritual. That's what the new covenant's all about. And so, Jesus had to fulfill this somehow, and that's what's fun when you start getting into it is like, okay, if this was just a story pointing to something to come, which is all a type and shadow is, what's really the real thing? And uh, that's what I'm going to try to show you. I think it, it's, it's pretty cool. And so first of all, I want to just go through. Then they moved from Bethel. Anybody know what the word Bethel means? House of God. If you ever look in scripture where Jesus is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you go look in the gospels, you'll always see Jesus left the house. You guys familiar with all those scriptures? Let's say Jesus left the house and then he went down to the multitudes on the seaside. You'll see it over and over and over. What's he talking about? So he's talking about uh, when we're transferring from the old covenant to a new covenant, he left the house where only the presence of God to the, the Jewish mind was behind the veil, wasn't it? And only the high priest could go once every year. But what happened to the, the multitudes, the Gentiles? To a Jewish mind, there were nowhere, they couldn't get in. They had to stay outside the temple system. And so you always see Jesus going, I left the house and I went by the seaside. Well, the seaside was always where the Gentiles were. It says he left the house and then he went face to face with the multitudes. Interesting? Now watch this. So he, he left the house and there's, there's so many stories in this thing. While they were still some distance from fruitfulness, Rachel began to give birth and had grave difficulty. You know what Rachel is? A you, a female lamb. So this is kind of fascinating to me too. That uh, anyway, so they, they were still a ways from fruitfulness. The female lamb began to give birth and had great difficulty. In fact, in King James, it says hard labor. And if we see in Galatians, it says, hey, you know what? Rejoice, you barren woman, because this other lady had lots of labor. You know who that other lady was? Hagar, right? Where it says, Hey, Hagar had lots of labor, but uh, uh, Sarah had a supernatural child, a spiritual child, right? And so there's so much packed in here. I'll, I'll try to keep going, but it's, I love this kind of stuff where it shows, uh, it's not just a story to, the, to, 
to the biblical scholars are like, this actually means something. And so she was having great difficulty in childbirth and the midwife said to her, don't despair for you're gonna have another son. So she had all this labor. A lot of people say this is Jacob's trouble too, where if you see Jacob wrestling and uh, uh, when Jesus came and he said, listen, this whole temple system is gonna be destroyed in the next genea, in the next 40 years. And they go, that was Jacob's trouble. When Israel was laboring and laboring and laboring, but they couldn't see God face to face. And then what actually happened 40 years after Jesus prophesied this whole temple system is going to be torn down, what happened? It literally got torn down 40 years after he prophesied it. And that's the the great pain. And so they're seeing, hey, you know what? They're trying to, by works, become a son. They're trying to give birth to sonship by their works. And they go, there's great labor in this. And labor makes you weary, right? I'll go through Leah and different things here in a second. So anyway, don't despair with all this labor. As she breathed her last for she was dying, she named her son Benoni. Anybody know what Benoni means? Son of sorrow. And if you go look at Isaiah 53, it says, We deemed him stricken by God, sorrowful. So she named her, the earthly mother named him son of sorrow, but what did the father name him? But the father said, No, no, he's not the son of sorrow. You just, the humans just thought he was the son of sorrow. He was Benjamin, which is son of my right hand. Isn't that interesting? So where's Jesus sitting? The Father's right hand. Where are you sitting? At the Father's right hand. That's what, that's what Ephesians, that was Paul's revelation. He says, don't you know you're seated in Christ above every other principle, every other power at the Father's right hand. In, the right hand is the position of honor. So that's where you guys are seated right now. In fact, all humanity is seated right at the, 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 the right hand of the Father, but they don't know it. So evangelism to us is to go, you were included. You were in Christ. All were included in Christ. And that, that's where it dropped me to the floor the first time I heard Baxter say that when he said, the gospel is not you can accept Christ into your life. The gospel is that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have included all humanity in their life. It's like, wow, that changes everything. And then if you go back to the church fathers, you go, all of them taught this. Where did we go wrong in the last 2,000 years? That's why it's so pure to me. So anyway, uh, the father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to fruitfulness that is Bethlehem. You guys know what Bethlehem means? The house of bread. So Jesus leaves the house. I'll, I'll, I'll read these types and shadows to you in a minute. Over a tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Adair. That means something. So I just, is that okay? I just wrote some notes on what a lot of this means here in a minute, which I think is cool. And so Bethel, the house of God, Jesus leaves the house. God was behind the veil in the temple, Right? But then he goes to the, he leaves the house, he goes behind the veil, and he sits with the multitudes by the seashore. It's over and over and over again in the Gospels, if you go look at it. So Jesus is fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies where he left the house, he came out from behind the veil, even though he never was behind the veil, but to the Jews, they thought he was behind the veil, and went down to the sea and sat face to face with the multitudes. Isn't that interesting? And so Rachel was having heavy labor trying to produce sonship. Isn't that what most religion is? Most religions, I'm trying to work and labor, etc. And God says, you know what? No, no, no. Jesus did all the work. Enter into the rest and just enjoy your sonship. Enjoy your fellowship. Enjoy your marriage to, to the lamb. That's what's going to make some sense here in a minute. So Rachel was having labor, trying to produce sonship. She eventually passed away, was buried on the way to fruitfulness. So when the death of the lamb happened, then where did they go? To Ephrata, to fruitfulness. Isn't that interesting? And so when we see this Moses as well, if you go look at the first five books of the, the Bible, you guys know all that from Sunday school, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it says, 
that's the Torah to the Jews. It says, so Moses, the servant died. Servants do what? Work, right? They work. They work for the master. They serve the Lord, etc. So when the old covenant died, when the Moses died, then the next verse, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what's the next verse or next book? Joshua. What is it in Hebrew? Yeshua, Jesus. It says, the Moses, the servant died. Yeshua brought him in to fruitfulness into the promised land. You see all this? This is pretty cool to me. And so Benoni is the son of sorrows. Isaiah 53 prophesies. He came to mankind, but they had new, no, oh, I just read this in a translation today. He came to mankind, but they had no room for him. Doesn't that sound like the Christmas story? They had no room in the, in the inn for him. It's actually, actually his lineage owned that land too, if you understand it. And so anyway, they thought he was stricken by God, but the father named him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Rachel was a you, a female lamb, right? So I love this kind of stuff. So after the lamb died, you guys know what uh, uh, Jacob is married to who in this story? Rachel, right? They're having the child here. And so Jacob, anybody know what Jacob means? It means supplanter or to exchange. And so after the lamb died, Jacob, if you go look at this, is, uh, did I put Jacob in there? Oh, no, if you go up a couple verses, they, they list Jacob's name. Is it there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, see, so check this out. So after the lamb died, over her tomb, Jacob set a pillar, and to this day it marked Rachel's tomb. So after the lamb dies, Jacob is exchanged for what? Israel. You can always look at it in Scripture. Jacob's name will be turned to Israel every time the lamb dies or when he sees, sees Jesus for who he is. Isn't that interesting? So anyway, I just think that's cool stuff. Jacob was changed to Israel after the lamb died. And Jacob means supplanter or exchange. <clears throat> and uh, Israel is this. If you go look up Israel, a lot of people just go, God's people. Right? Have you heard that? Right? Israel is God's people. But what's interesting to me is if you go really look at it in Hebrew, it means the fight is the Lord's. It's God's work. And so here's what's going on. Hey, stop working so hard. It's God's work. And once you see that the lamb died, the lamb did all the work, Jesus did all the work for all humanity, now you can rest in Israel, God's people, as Jesus did all the work. God does the work. I like that kind of stuff. So after the hard labor dies, they move to fruitfulness of the land of fruitfulness. We've all heard that story, right? When, when Moses died, he didn't go into the promised land, but then Yeshua took him into the promised land. So your works can never get you there is what's going on, is you can never be good enough, you can never do enough right, you can never not sin enough to ever enter into fruitfulness. You have to rest and go, Jesus included me, he did all the work, now I can move into fruitfulness. You can be a son right now without having to work for it. And that's what the whole prodigal son was all about, is the, it's really the heart of the father. The prodigal son said, hey, he wasted his, his life on riotous living is what some of the King James says. And he comes back and he doesn't expect the father to bless him, right? And he goes, make me a servant in my father's house. What was the father's response? No way. Put the robe back on, put the ring on, put the slippers on. Slippers to them, the, the servants or the slaves didn't wear slippers. They were barefoot. But slippers meant there's no work for you to do. Enter into the house and enjoy the spoils. That's pretty cool to me. And so anyway... And uh, you guys know uh, uh, Jacob, you remember who his first wife was? Leah. So Jacob marries his first wife, which was, she was veiled, right? Couldn't see. Well, what's the veil? 
the law is what the Bible says. Trying to be good enough by be, doing good works, following the old covenant, there's a veil. So Jacob first was married to Leah, which brings weariness, hard labor. You get tired, right? But then after seven years of perfect work, he gets to marry who? Rachel. So what's the number seven in scripture? After perfect work, after seven years of perfect work, after the work was complete, who does he marry? The lamb. Rachel's the you. Isn't that interesting? You guys getting this? You could spend a, a year on this right here, all the different types and shadows in scripture. I just wanted to share that with you. Is that cool or is that cool? All right, let's go to this next slide. We'll keep, we'll keep rolling here. Some of you guys probably don't like it as much as me. I just love all that stuff. Anyway, <laughs> Luke 2.8. This is the classic Christmas story that we've all heard, but I'm going to show you different things. Once you read that in the Old Covenant, now you see that it's fulfilled in the New Covenant. Man. So here's Luke 2.8. Now they're in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to how many people? All people. So here's the thing, guys, here's, and I still see Christianity struggling with this. Every religion has an angry, scary God that needs to be appeased. In Christianity, that's how most of it's taught too, right? But how does God reveal himself? What's the first announcement? Don't be afraid. Isn't that what it says in the New Covenant? He said, I didn't give you a spirit of fear. I gave you a spirit of Abba Father, that you're my dad, which got Jesus killed because he said, my, me and the Father are one. He's my father. And the Jews said, wait a minute. If he's your father, that means you're co-equal with him. Blasphemy is exactly, exactly what they said. And then Jesus, before he passes, right before he's going to go over the, the Passover week, he says, listen, in that day, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and that spirit's going to let you know that you don't have to even pray to me anymore. You can pray to yourself to the Father. He's saying, you are all sons. You're all in the Father's house. The, the name above all names is surname, literally. It says all humanity is surnamed salvation. It's fascinating to me. So anyway, so the first declaration when God reveals himself to these people, he says, don't be afraid because all religion scares, there's a scary God, Right? And so don't be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. So the announcement about Jesus was good tidings of great joy to everybody. And Jesus doesn't change, does he? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what is he still saying? Good tidings of great joy to everybody. Now, here's the kicker, if we really understand this, that he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has no shadow or turning like men is what it says. So here's what, how Christianity is taught out of fear, and incorrectly in my opinion. It says, hey, every knee is going to bow, right, before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, who are you going to meet? The same guy that says good tidings of great joy to all people. And it says every knee is going to bow and confess that he is Lord. See, I, I, I think that just fits with 2 Corinthians where it says, you know what? Now we see with the veil, we're still trying, a lot of people are still trying to be good enough. They're trying to do it by works to enter into life and fellowship with God. Like, where is he? What? And they have this idea that he needs to be appeased and he's angry somehow. And, and uh, our Christmas songs, even Santa Claus is coming to town. We even sing about it, don't we? It says, you better be good. How's it go? I don't even know. Yeah, you better, what is it? You better not pout? I haven't watched enough Christmas movies with you this season. I don't remember it. I don't even remember how it goes. He's checking his list. That's what I was after. He's checking his list. He's checking it twice. Yeah. And if you're naughty, what happens? 
You get the bag of coal, exactly right. <laughs> now, here's what's really cool about all that. Is that true? So, here's what's really fascinating to me. So, if you're naughty, what do you get? The same gift as the guy who is good. That's what, that's what, that's what actually Romans says. He goes, you know what? All have been disobedient, meaning they, and obedience to him is not following rules, guys. Obedience to him is saying the same thing about who you are in Christ as God sees you. That's obedience to Christ is what he says. When you say that I am a child of God no matter what I do, his favor is on me, his blessings on me, no matter what, that is homologia. That's confession of, of God. Not going and tell him, here's all the wrong things I did, right? Because in God's eyes, if he never keeps any record of wrong, what's he, what does he do? What are you talking about? I removed that as far as the east is from the west. All I am is perfect love in every need. When they, once they finally see me without a veil, they're going to realize I've always loved them. I've always never been angry with them. All I want to do is pour out my blessing no matter what in their life. I want them to know me in fellowship with me. Is that cool? I love that. So he says, you know what? The angel said, don't be afraid. He's still saying that. Everybody, hey, church shouldn't be this scary thing. He's going, you know, this is really good news. I'm one with you. He flips the script, which we'll talk about here in a minute. So for this... For there is born to this day in the city of David a Savior, salvation, Yeshua, is really what it says, who is the Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. We're going to talk about why that means a sign here in just a second. So Luke 2.13, you keep going, and suddenly there was the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. So it was when the angels gone from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us, know, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Now here's what's interesting to me. All that the angel of the Lord says, hey, uh, in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. How many mangers were in Bethlehem at that time? A lot. Every shepherd had a manger, which was a feeding trough, a stone trough. How did they know exactly where to go? I'll share with you in a minute. If I, if I said this, if I said, uh, um, if I said, David Rose, here's the deal. Um, you need to go, here, here's, this is the sign's going to be. There's going to be a house with a light on in Colorado Springs. Now go. It's the equivalent of that, right? How, how do you know where to go? You don't. But here's what's fascinating to me, and I'm going to read this out of, uh, some of you guys, you don't have to go get this book, it's a really tough read. It's Alfred Edersheim, it's a Jewish uh, historian, but I love this. And here's how they knew, because the Old Testament prophesied about this the whole time. And it says, the Jewish tradition may here prove to be illustrative and helpful, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he would be revealed from Migdal Adar, the tower of the flock. Didn't we just read that? So the tower of the flock literally is Migdal Adar. It's this shepherd's watchtower outside of Bethlehem Ephrata. There were two. And, uh, um, well, let me keep reading. I don't want to give it away. So he was to be revealed from Migdal Adar, the tower of the flock. This Migdal Adar was not the watchtower for ordinary flocks which pastured on the barren sheep ground. So this is how you know which, where to go, not just the house with the light on. So the, the tower of the flock where this is, guys, is this is a special field. And I'll tell you, a passage in the Mishnah leads to the conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices. And accordingly, the shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary shepherds. The latter were under the ban of rabbinism on account of their necessary isolation to make religious ordinances almost if not unlikely, absolutely impossible. This same Mishnic passage, which leads us to infer that these flocks lay out all year round since they are spoken of as in the fields 30 days before the Passover, that's the month of February, 
when Palestine, the average rainfall is nearly the greatest. It was then on that wintry night of the 25th of December that shepherds watched the flocks destined for sacrificial sacrifices in the very place consecrated by tradition is that's where the Messiah was to first be revealed. It was as if the attendant angels had only waited at the signal as when the sacrifice was laid on the altar. In the Old Covenant, when the sacrifice was laid on the altar, the high priest, not the high priest, the priests took three silver trumpets and blew three blasts. So when Jesus is actually laid in the trough, what has happened? The angels come out and say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. He's fulfilling all of this, which is really cool to me. When the sacrifices was laid on the altar, the temple music burst forth in three sections, each marked by the blast of the priest's silver trumpets. So when the herald angel had spoken, a multitudes of heaven hosts stood before him to him the good tidings he had brought. What they sang was but to a reflex of what had been announced. Glory to God in the highest and upon earth, peace among men and good pleasure. And interesting? Let's go to this next slide real quick and we'll... We'll wrap this up pretty fast. Here's how they knew. It was prophesied in the Old Covenant. And the Mishnah, guys, was the, the oral traditions that the Jews passed down. After the second temple was destroyed, they wrote it down because they were like, you know what? The Jews are getting dispersed again. We better write this down because we, we, we're not having temple services again. We need to pass on this tradition. So that was the first time they actually wrote it down before it was passed orally from generation to generation. But here's where Micah 5.2 is prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus. It says, but to you, Bethlehem Ephrata. The reason they used Bethlehem Ephrata was because there were two Bethlehems at the time. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So they said, out of Bethlehem Ephrata is where the ruler of Israel is going to be, right? And the ruler of Israel, Israel is, the fight is the Lord's. It's not our work anymore. And then if you keep going, Micah prophesies, this is what's really cool to me. As for you, O tower of the flock, here of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem, Micah 4.8. Now, that right there, guys, is the tower of the flock. It's a special field right outside of Bethlehem where it says these weren't ordinary lambs. These were lambs that were going to be given to the temple for sacrifice. Now, if we go to this next slide, I think that's the, yeah, this, I've shown all of you guys this, but I love this. So most of us have this idea because you grew up in a Western church and you have the nativity scene and it looks like a, a little wooden box, right? And you got some shepherds and stuff there. Um, that is not a trough. That is, this is a feeding trough. And so here's what happened, guys, is where it says, when they said, hey, this is going to be a sign to you, you're going to find a, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes laying in a manger. Well, here's what they did with this, this, the lambs that were going to be to the temple sacrifice. The lambs could not have one bruise. They couldn't have one scratch. They couldn't have anything on them. So the minute those, if, if anybody's been around farms or you see horses or cattle or lambs getting, if they're born, do they stand up right away or no? They're clumsy, falling into gates, everything else cutting themselves up, right? So what, what happened here, this tower of the flock, guys, shepherds watched over those, and as soon as the lambs were about to give birth, they ran out, they swaddled the, the lambs in swaddling clothes and wrapped them up tight so they couldn't move, and they laid them in a trough. Then they brought them to the temple for the sacrifice. So the minute Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in the manger, the angels of the Lord talked to the shepherds, says, this is good news, guys. This is the lamb that the whole world's been waiting for. This is the true sacrifice. Isn't that cool? I think that is cool. And that's where when you understand this stuff, it's like, oh my gosh, this is really cool to me. And uh, there were actually, you would use grave clothes. 
So he was born to die for us. Now here's where I want to get, which is a little different from Christmas from most of the things that you've been heard. Most of you have been taught this, that uh, God came to save us from our sin. Have you all been taught that? Where somehow he's perfect love, but the minute we did something wrong, he's so angry he can't look at us, so he's got to kill somebody else. Then he'll love us again. That is a twisted gospel to me. That is not the gospel. That's not what the gospel the church fathers taught. That's not what any of them taught. That's this penal substitution, legalistic thing. Sin, as you guys have been, been hearing, sin is not behavior, guys. Sin is a distorted, fallen mindset that thinks we're less in God's eyes than perfect love. Now, when people aren't loved, you guys see this all the time, where, where uh, kids grow up in households where there's not a lot of love. What happens to the kids? Get crazy a lot of the times, don't they? And so think about the humanity too. The only source of perfect love, when they're taught about this God who's angry, that needs to kill somebody because he's so angry, and if you don't say the right things before you die, then what happens? Then you're gonna be tortured forever. Does that sound like good news to you? That sounds like terrible news to me. I would run from that too, actually, and when I understand it now, I'm like, gosh, it's crazy. But when you're taught that from this high in Sunday school, you go, yeah, yeah, I guess that's what it is. I guess that's good news. I remember Barbara and I always would say that. I was like, why did, that's a whole nother talk. Maybe we'll get Brad to do that on January 9th. Why did Jesus have to die? That's an interesting, I never, no pastor, nobody could ever answer it for me. It's like, yeah, wait, wait, why did he have to die? He's God. Can't he just forgive? Doesn't perfect love forgive? So why does he need to go kill somebody to forgive us? And nobody could answer it for me for my whole life, really, until the last couple of years when you go back, the church fathers didn't teach that. They taught, here's why he came, guys. He came to heal our hearts, to heal our distorted mind, to show us every religion in the world has an angry God that needs to be appeased. He's mad. He's upset. He's on a mountain somewhere distant from us. And so the best way to appease an angry God is what? Sacrifice, especially the firstborn, Right? If you go look, almost all the religious cultures, they sacrifice children to appease God, almost all of them, on some temple, some altar somewhere. Well, if you go look at the, the whole idea of Christianity, God actually flips the script. When Abraham goes up the mountain, right, with Isaac, what happens? Abraham's about to kill Isaac, and what happens? The Lord steps in, and he says, no, 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 I will be Jehovah Jireh. I will provide the sacrifice. I will provide the lamb. If you're, I'm not like every religion. It's really what I was trying to show you. It's like, I'm not angry. I've never been angry. In fact, I've been in you the whole time, which is really interesting. And I've loved you perfectly the whole time. If you need to place your anger somewhere, I'll let you place it on me. I'll become the sacrifice. Every religion that requires our sacrifice, Christianity, real Christianity says, no, no, he will be the sacrifice. So humanity kills him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Even the greatest sin, that's where Paul says, where sin abounds, grace does what? Superbounds. So the great sin is not behavior. Again, sin is distorted. So humanity kills him thinking that this guy says he's God and that God's, God's his father. Let's kill him for that. That's blasphemy. God's so distant and he requires lambs to be sacrificed. He goes, no, no, I'll be the sacrifice. I'll let you kill me and I'll show you that I've never been mad. In fact, I'm perfect love. And I'll show you one step further is because you've been fear of death your whole life, I'll show you that there's not even death in my world is death is even swallowed up by perfect life. After three days, what happened? He rose again and said, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and shall bring to life your mortal body. Isn't that interesting? 
So we were just reading that about Norman Vincent Peale this morning. It says he's so convinced after all these years that even death, physical death, is the greatest act of love where there's new life. He goes, I'm going to swallow up even death and bring new life. So what's the whole point of all this, guys? Is Jesus comes to heal our heart. He didn't have to die for God to appease God. God was his dad. He's his father. He's a perfect love. He came to go, you know what? I'm going to show you I'm unlike any other God. I'm not like any other religion that requires something. All I do is give to you and give to you and give to you and favor you and bless you. That's all I do. I just want you to be in relationship with me. And when you pass out of this body, all you're going to find is perfect love again and new life. Isn't that interesting? That's what Christianity, that's what Christmas is all about. He loved us so much as a bride, he gave the bride's price. When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. If you go read it in Aramaic, it says, for my bride. He paid the mohar, which is the bride's ransom, basically. What is my bride worth? And Jesus was saying on that cross, he goes, there's no greater love than to do what? To lay down your life for anybody, much less your bride. And the bride's really us, is all through scripture. He says, it was all about you. I loved you so much, I'll even die for you. But I'm not going to stay dead because there's, death is not real in my world. On the third day, I rise again and have new life. All there is is one spirit, one life, one God. That's what he says. Isn't that cool? All right, last slide here, I think, is the last slide, is what we're doing. Is this making sense to you? It's probably not like any other Christmas service you're getting, but right? Because I always liked the songs, etc., but never meant anything to me. I was like, okay, what? I don't get it. Hey, here's the deal, Mike, is if you just believe that Jesus died... And on the third day rose again. If you confess that, you're saved. Like, how? What, what did it do? I never understood it. What it was supposed to do is just to heal your heart. It was supposed to heal our heart. And that's what it says. The good news of Jesus Christ so zoes you, heals you. So the church fathers, they didn't teach, hey, he had to come and pay for our sins, for our behavior. He said, you know what? Humanity doesn't realize they've, they've, there's a veil over their, their eyes. They, they think that to have relationship with me, the God of the universe, the lover of the universe, they need to do these religious works. He says, I'm going to show them that's totally wrong. He goes, I've never wanted religious works. That was the veil where we couldn't see correctly. And they thought they could never have all the blessings because their behavior or typically they worked really hard religiously and still were frustrated like the older brother. And the father comes and sets them both straight. He says, I do all the work. I just want you to inherit all my blessings and be a son in the father's house. It says, our hearts, when it's sprinkled with Christ's blood, releases us from all condemnation. That's really what he was after, guys. He goes, I want you to never, and that's really where the name came from. If you knew he would never punish you for all of your behavior ever again, how would you feel? Free. And that's why it says, the Son has set you free from the law of sin, distortion, and death. All there is is life. You guys get it? All right, so all other religions require a sacrifice to an angry God. God flips the script. That's what Christmas is all about. He said, you thought I was angry and distant. I come with a baby, and I said, there's great tidings of goodwill toward you, and it'll never change. I'll always have good tidings and goodwill towards humanity because they're my kids. And so all other religions require a sacrifice. He came as the sacrifice instead of requiring one. He literally flipped the script, which is why Christianity is different than any other. And I get it. That's why most people are like, I can't believe in a God that would be evil to most of humanity. I go, I can't anymore. I can't either. But that's all I was given growing up. But the church father said, no, he came as a healer, as a physician, because our hearts needed healing. It was us why he died, not to appease some angry father or God. So instead of the lion, don't we read that? 
It says, you know what? The lion goes about seeking whom he may devour. That's, the, that was the, that's most humanity's picture of God. He must be this lion, right? This lion and the lamb. But if you see Revelation, what does Revelation mean? The unveiling, right? Revelation, if you go look at re- verse one in Revelation, it says the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Not this disaster that's gonna happen in the world, but it says unveiling of Jesus Christ. And when he's there, John says, listen, I turned in the temple expecting to see a lion, and what did he see instead? A lamb, as if it had been slain. He goes, the world was expecting me to become this angry lion out for blood, but I was a slain lamb is really how I came. Isn't that fascinating? So instead of this devourer angry at humanity, he didn't come as the lion to devour us. He came as a lamb that would be slain for us. When he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in the manger for the true temple sacrifice. He was salvation is what he says. So the father's love even swallows up death. That's what Romans 8 is talking about where Paul says, you know what? We thought all these things that even death somehow could separate you from love. What does Paul say? Nay, you're more than the conqueror in all this. So when you die, guys, you don't even have to fear that. Nobody has to fear it. They're going to see him face to face. They're going to see perfect love face to face. It says, here we see with a veil, but when we see perfect love face to face, everybody's going to know, finally, he loved me. He loved me perfectly. And I think people melt when they get into perfect love. So he came to show us as with us and for us, not angry and distant. That's what Emmanuel is, right? You guys know all those songs, Rejoice and Grace, Emmanuel? When he was born, what did they call him? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God's with you. He's never been apart from you. That's what it says. This mystery that's been hidden from the ages but is now unveiled with Jesus Christ is God in you, through you, and withholding you. He is Emmanuel. We th- Christianity still thinks he's this distant God on a mountain. He goes, no, no, my, I'm Emmanuel. I'm with you. I'm in you. Isn't that cool? So Revelation 5.11, worthy is the lamb. So the unveiling, Revelation is unveiling of Jesus Christ. Worthy is the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus Christ, right? When the lamb was slain in the old covenant, what happened? Then they went into the land of fruitfulness, right? So when Rachel died, what happened? They moved on into Frata, Bethlehem of Frata, into fruitfulness. And so worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Now, when all the perfect work was done, Jacob originally was married to Leah, which is toilsome labor, after seven years of hard work, seven's number of completion, who did he marry? The lamb. So if the lamb's worthy of this, who are you married to? Jesus Christ. So you are worthy. You're a joint heir. You're the bride of Christ. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So at your worst, guys, at humanity's worth, how does God feel about you? No, no, you're worthy, you're worthy. That's what we have to get out of people is condemnation. That's where all these people I think are contacting us constantly online right now going, can you please help us find a church in our area that teaches this? There's not any, unfortunately, but we'll help you start it. It's easier than you think. And the reason I'm passionate about it now because I get it, what condemnation does to people, some people can handle it, but lots of people actually start losing their mind when they think that they might go to hell or they might uh, uh, somehow committed the the wrong sin. And I know that when condemnation's there, they don't feel valuable, they don't feel worthy, they lose all productivity, they lose all creativity, and they lose compassion a lot of times. So anyway, that's why it's so important to me is, is not to, to go somehow evangelize them and get them in. 
It's to really heal their hearts so they can start living life and life more abundantly. Not only you, but everybody. It's important to me. So anyway, guys, you, I want you to meditate on that this, this week. You are married to the Lamb. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and praise. You. See, here's what's cool. If you start meditating on that, you guys have heard me long enough, your brain actually, you rewire your whole nervous system to start going, you know what, I am valuable. I am worthy to be praised. I am worthy to be honored. Not in a weird, egotistical way. You just have a good self-image about you. And we love others when we know we're first loved. When you know you're perfectly loved, guess what? You can start loving humanity. Does that make sense to you guys? That's what Christmas was all about. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So from now on, enjoy the amazing gifts you've been given in sonship. There's nothing to do. There's no work to be done. You're a son in the Father's house. You can just enjoy it. You've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing is what Paul says. So a lot of people are like, Lord, please bless me. Did he bless you with every spiritual blessing? Yes. So I'm asking you guys to start operating out of, I am blessed. Not I'm trying to work to be blessed. That'll make you weary. You'll be married to Rachel again or Leah again. Does that make sense? So you need to start operating out of, I am. I am not, I'm trying to become. I might become good enough if God somehow favors me. Does that make sense to you guys? And so I'm going to do a little message for you next week, just how to, how to really make 2019 the best year you've ever had in every area of your life, whether it's relationships, whether it's finances, whether it's uh, really whatever it is, and it's really getting the truth in here. It's really reprogramming your heart. That's what Jesus came to do as he goes, the heart sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel, we needed vengeance. Somebody's got to pay for this. But the blood of Jesus goes, I paid it all. And now it's for you, for the bride. And then he cleaned his head. He rested his head when he died. That's what Easter's all about too, which is really fascinating to me. So anyway, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. There's no work to do, guys. Just enter into the rest. Amen?
But here's, uh, here's what I want you to do this next week, honestly, is I still think most humanity has this condemnation, like I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I made this mistake, man, I made this mistake again. And I want you to go look at Revelation 5.11 again and repeat it to yourself, because this is the prayer. This is the unveiling of Jesus was not the fact that he was ever mad at humanity or ever will be. It says, it was all a wrong thought, which is what sin is, a distortion of fallen mindset. Does that make sense? And so here's what I want you to really meditate on. Revelation 5.11 says, you know what? I am worthy to receive power. At your worst, that's when it's really hard. That's homologio, that's true confession, is say the same thing about God. And as I was sharing last week when it says, that scripture says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. That's been used so incorrectly to put fear into people. In fact, a, a friend of mine on Facebook, even this last week, he's like, if you deny me before men, I'm gonna deny you before the Father. I go, that's baloney. If you read it, and it says, if you contradict me before men, meaning I'm a sinner, I'm no good, I'm not worthy, etc." Jesus says, I will contradict that before the Father. Here's what he's gonna say about you before the Father. He's gonna say, you are worthy to receive power. Humanity's saying you're not. But I tell the Father, they're worthy to receive power. They're worthy to receive wealth. They're worthy to receive wisdom. They're worthy to receive strength. They're worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. That's the prayer over you. That's really what Christmas is all about. He goes, I came to give gifts to men. Goodwill towards men. I've never been angry. Don't ever let that lie ever enter your heart again. It says, you are worthy. You're valuable. And I did it all for you. Amen? You're released in Jesus' magnificent name. Have a Merry Christmas.